0: just a few minutes we're going to uh be in second corinthians chapter five if you uh have your bibles and want to open there otherwise as always we'll have an opportunity to follow on the uh, on the screens before you i want to share with you as i often do the the seed that got planted for for this sermon and it it got planted when i was away last week about actually week and a half ago when Tony Tony and I first left, we took a week, if you were here last week you know I wasn't, Uh, Tony and I took a week away, we left the kids behind and just the two of us went and we did it with no guilt whatsoever. Um, uh, We remind our children very often and they understand we were actually married and uh, in love with each other before you two came along, so so we take some time occasionally to do that and they've seen us do that over the years and, and they gripe about it but they get over it. Um, but, uh, the first day that we were away, we were getting something to eat and, um, we were, it was just a, you know, kind of an open air, not diner, you know, little grill kind of a thing. They had music playing and the song that was playing was an 80s song that I remember that I grew up to, which was a song called, um, Her Name is Rio" by Duran Duran. Not a song I expect a lot of you to know. Some of you are going to know it, and um, the the chorus is: "Her name is Rio, and she dances on the sand," and which was fun- fitting because Tony and I were at the beach, and um, all week long, all week long, that's the song I kept singing. I, Tony, I mean, and and Tony has to hear me sing because I do it to her. I won't do it to you, but uh, I just it got stuck, you know, it it got stuck, and so. Every time I, you know, subconsciously would find myself singing that song again or talking to Tony and, hey, hey, Tony, do you know what her name is? And she'd look at me and go, what? And I'd be like, her name is Rio. She dances on the sand. You know, that kind of a thing. Now, it got there. So what do we call that? Do you know what we call that? An earworm. An earworm. We call that an earworm. I got an earworm. And so I started to think, what are some um, notorious earworms? And so I thought we'd have a little fun. Now I gotta change this because each service uh, generationally is a little different. But here are some uh, here are some notir- noto- notorious earworms. You can find lists all over the place, and they vary a little bit, but but here's one some of you might identify. Let's see if this works. We represent the Yes, you're welcome. Um, And what's that from? Wizard of Oz. Oz. Okay, a lot of you remember. This is one I remembered from my, again, from my childhood. See if some of you remember this one. How I many of you remember that one? Remember the show? It's just, it just repetitive over and over and over again. Um, a more modern one, I'll just do a couple more. I have so many of these. You don't know how much fun I had doing this. Um who let the dog sound! the dogs out? Who, 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 who? Who let the Alright, just one more. We're gonna finish with this. This is my gift to you. The worst most painful earworm, earworm <laughs> the cruelest earworm ever in the history of the world. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small, small world. And if you've ever ridden that never-ending ride at Disney. You know that by the time you never, ever want to hear that song again. I so said, you know what would make It's a Small World so much fun is if they gave you a softballs and you could just throw them as you went. But anyway, that's my earworms. And, and like I have, I have like 10 of them here. We're done, though. I'm, I'm going to quit now. We'll be here all, all morning. You can go read the... the the, trying to a scientific breakdown of why these things get stuck in our heads and hopefully I've stuck something in your head today um, because you should share the pain I felt preparing for this and why they get stuck and why they get there and, and we can't get them out and and science has a lot of different things but one of the the dominant theories is that it comes down to simplicity and repetitiveness that that the songs are are, are simplistic in, in in their their structure that we can grasp them, we can follow them easily, and that there is a repetitive nature to the words. I mean, it's a small world. Over and over, who let the dogs out? Over and over. These are not masterpieces of of um, uh, you know music and 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 art creation, but but they get stuck there because of something called process uh, fluency, and that process fluency just relates to the fact that we tend to gravitate things, we grab onto things that are easy for us to understand, that that appeal to us um, at a very, very simplistic level. We like things that we can make sense of, uh, both consciously and and subconsciously. So it's process fluency, and it gets stuck in our heads. Simplicity and repetitiveness. Well, believe it or not, there's a connection here. I'm actually going somewhere with this, And, and it It ties us into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to hear what Paul writes in these five verses, verses 16 through 21. This is Paul's word to the church in Corinth, and Paul's word and God's word to us today. This is what it says. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we do so, um, I'm sorry, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. And, And let our prayer be simply this morning that God would help us to hear, to hear his word to us. And that word this morning has a repetitive nature. Did you catch the repetitive word in the text? What was it? Reconcile. It was reconcile. Now, I'm not saying the message is simplistic, the message is profound. But the word, Paul kind of drills in over and over. I don't think it's a mistake. He says that in five verses, this is what we have we have um, reconciled, we have reconciliation. We have reconciling, we have reconciliation, and we have reconciled. Paul wants us to understand, if you will, to to kind of get into our head. His his process fluency here is that at the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of our obedience to God, is this understanding of reconciliation. It is what God has done for us and what God desires to do through us. And I'm going to come back. To that in a moment. Well, reconciliation in the Greek is not necessarily, in it's, in, in the understanding of the word, wasn't necessarily a religious word. Richard Hayes is a professor of, of New Testament at Duke uh, Divinity School, who I studied with years ago, talked about this, talks about this word, and he says, in many times it was more of a political word. It had a political com- connotation. It was the idea that two warring nations, or two nations that were, um, ...divided against themselves or, or, or in, in conflict with each other... ...would be brought together, would, would find peace. Uh, in, in human relationships, it, it may be understood the way... A, ...a estranged husband and wife would find reconciliation, would find peace... ...and the relationship gets restored. The connection gets restored. That's the heart of, of what this, this word reconciliation means. And what Paul wants to, to drill into our heads, if you will... Is that this is what God has done for us. The, the, the heart of our faith is that God has reconciled us to him. That he has brought us into a restored relationship in spite of our failure, in spite of our sin, in spite of our disobedience. If, you, if you're familiar with the narrative of the scriptures, you know that this is that repetitive theme from Genesis to Revelation. That God says, this is my expectation for you. This is my command for you. This is my desire for you and over and over and over again the people us disobey that. Are disobedient, worship false gods, turn away from the ways of the Lord, act in ways that are that are unfaithful to his call and over and over again, Paul says God reconciles us. God brings us back into the relationship. God restores us through his grace and through his mercy and for, through his forgiveness. So we begin with that recognition as as people who express gratitude to god for that gift and so so paul does that i mean that that's what he says that's kind of how he begins each of the phrases let me just go back to one he says all this from god who reconciled us to himself through christ um and and later on god made him to be no sin or who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God so that we may be as he says in verse 20 reconciled to God so that's that's where it begins this is what God has done for us and most of us know this most of us have have heard me preach and other preachers or bible studies this is what we talk about God has given us this free gift for you know in, in by faith you are saved through grace it is not of yourselves it is the gift of God reconciliation but with the gift of reconciliation what God does for us is the understanding of what God expects to do through us and that's where we have to be really attentive because each time Paul talks about reconciliation he goes to the second part of each verse he says all this to God who reconciled us to himself through Christ okay we're good there yay thanks God And then he says this, and has called us to the ministry of reconciliation. God has done this for us. Now God expects us to do this. And then later on he says he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are called to be people whose lives, whose faithfulness, whose obedience is measured, is marked, is demonstrated... Through our desire to be people of reconciliation, people of peace, people of restored relationships. Paul was writing, again, I've talked over and over in sermons and and when I've stood before you, we always remember that, that Paul's letters are written in a context. Things are happening. And Paul's writing to a church in Corinth that is dealing with some challenges. And one of those challenges is they are fractured socioeconomically they're very different they have rich and poor in the church and they're struggling to find common ground they have male and female in the church and they're struggling to understand what those roles and how they live in as the body of christ in in a culture that elevates one men and very often devalues another women but that's not the way of christ so they're struggling there they have different allegiances. This is where Paul earlier, he talked about some follow Paul, some follow Apollo. So they've got some religious differences that are going on. So in the ways they understand faith and, and who, the, who the best teachers are. So, so they're fractured there. They, and, and undoubtedly, they have political differences. They see the world differently and understand the world differently. All these things are happening. And boy, if you don't think that's a good description of what we struggle with in the church today, you're not paying attention it's no different 2,000 years later. We struggle socioeconomically. We're different. We come from different places, different worldviews. I don't know if you've caught on, but we tend to be a little sh- fractured politically. Maybe a little. And that happens here. You know, that's not out there. That, that's here. We, we have these same tensions, these same struggles. And what Paul desperately wants the church to recognize as part of your witness is the way you seek reconciliation. That you live into God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you seek to to build bridges in Christ rather than walls in the things of of the world. That our witness is demonstrated when we don't look like the world around us, but we find our, our unity through faith, and that becomes the most important thing. But the problem for us, for me, and for for us, is that too often that isn't our prime objective. We, we we verbalize it, but but we don't live it. I, as I shared earlier in July, when when Tony and I and the kids were away, we went to Gettysburg, and uh, and spent spent a few days there, and that kind of I got it. Birthed a, a deeper interest for me in some of those Civil War, uh, the Civil War history. And one of the, the books that I picked up, my brother actually had, is a book called um, Killer Angels. I don't know if anybody has read that. It's a. You, some of you have read it. Okay, it's it's a wonderful book, and it's a it's about the Battle of Gettysburg, factually based, but it's kind of told in a novel form. If any of you saw the movie Gettysburg. From the early 90s, Turner um, was kind of a four-and-a-half-hour movie. It's based on that book. So, so I read the book. That's one of the things I did last week when I was away with Tony. I read books that I didn't have to read. It was wonderful. Um, I mean, there were books that I just wanted to read for me, not because they were on a reading list somewhere. And so I read Fallen Angels. And then I went back and, and watched the movie. There's a line in the movie that just really struck me very powerfully. Um, And and I know these names may not be familiar with you if you're not uh, familiar with Gettysburg or Civil War history. But uh, in in the the movie, uh, General Longstreet, one of the Confederate generals, second in command to Lee, is having a conversation with a a character by the name of Fremantle who was British and was visiting and spending time with the, the Confederate Army, studying, if you will. And this is what he said. They were talking about the issue of slavery. And he said, what we Southerners and you English have in common is that we would rather lose the war than admit that we made a mistake. <laughs> we would rather lose the war than admit that we made a mistake or that we were wrong. And I thought, boy, that's, that, that hits me. Because that's where I live sometimes. I get into these conflicts. War is a strong word, but I get into these conflicts. Sometimes they're at home, you know, with with Tony or with the kids, because we're humans and and we have those realities. Sometimes it's with, with colleagues or church people. It doesn't matter. Human conflict, we all know it. And I recognize it in my heart. I'd rather lose the argument, lose the conflict, than admit... I was wrong and that's important because the ministry of reconciliation begins with a willingness to admit I was wrong to admit I was wrong and that is hard for us because we're really good I'm really good when we're in a conflict at finding where you are wrong (laughs) but it's harder for me I want to tell you one of the most valuable lessons in marriage I learned and it took me a while to learn it But when Tony and I would get into a a disagreement, and um, and I like to win disagreements, and I had to learn that even when I thought I won, I never won. Um, (laughs) But but I learned, and Tony has too, that a good place to start is in self-reflection. And in the aftermath of an argument or tension, I would get into the habit of just stepping back and going, where was I wrong? That's not to say that I was completely wrong, sometimes, probably more often than not, but Tony and I have never had an argument, never had a disagreement, never had a conflict that there wasn't something I needed to own in it. There wasn't something I could have handled better, been more responsive, been more graceful, been more loving, been more understanding, whatever you want to say. So, so got into the habit. Of starting with this when we would try to work through our tensions I'm sorry I'm sorry I did and it's amazing when I would do that or when she would do that how easy it was to resolve the tensions and how that very often led if she started that way it led me in, down that same path and and what it demonstrated not that we have a perfect marriage not that we don't struggle and still we have to work on this every day. But But it reminded me that the most important thing in the relationship was not winning the argument. It was restoring the bond and the love and the reconciliation. So what became more important was not winning. It was relationship. I'd rather lose the war than admit I was wrong. No, 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 because when I could admit I was wrong, there was no war to begin with. There there was no conflict. That's what we're called to. That's who we are called to. And and when that begins to happen, wonderful things happen. There's a picture I saw when I was in Gettysburg. It was from 1913, which was the 50th year anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. You may have seen this. It's a pretty famous picture. But it's taken at one of the famous walls there where the Union and Confederate soldiers battled. There were 8,000 veterans at that um, 50-year remembrance. I don't think celebration is the right word. But what you see there in that picture are Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers shaking hands, reaching across that barrier, that divide. It begins with a willingness to put others above ourselves. That's what... Paul wants the church to model a willingness to to be confessional we do this before God we we know for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God we know that we come to God honest and open but Paul wants the church to do that to each other to be instruments of reconciliation sometimes that means maybe we help heal divides between other people but I'm going to tell you I think it really begins with the divides in our own lives with the, the healing that God calls us to the restoration that we need in, in our own relationships. It's too often we just we reflect the world and we undermine the message of Christ with our own desire to win over relationships. There's there's a there's a wonderful church. It's called the Chapel of Reconciliation and it sits at once was the border the wall between East and West Berlin. It was destroyed. I mean, it, it, was, it was the, interestingly enough, it was the Church of Reconciliation long before there was a border between East and West Berlin. And then it was destroyed, and it was rebuilt. And as the wall's been torn down, they keep a, a memorial to the wall. But, but not to celebrate the division, but to be instruments to work still to heal the divides to bring those who were part of the, the East Berlin Secret Service and those who were hurt and affected by that, to bring those relationships back. And the pastor who was part of that ministry of reconciliation says that it must always begin with an admission of I was wrong, with an admission of I was sorry. And what he said was so profound was how often the people that were harmed and hurt were anxious to forgive. They wanted to forgive. And that simple act of confession began building the bridges how how are we doing it building the bridges here's what i believe paul wants he wants that word reconciliation reconciled he wants that rattling in our head the way that it's a small world rattles in our head when we hear it we can't get it out he wants that word to be stuck there but not just here he wants it stuck here so that it begins to change us here not just stuck in the head, but stuck in the heart, that begin to change behaviors so that the church in Corinth and the church in parish and the church around the world will recognize and reflect Jesus not just by the confession that we make, but to the way that we live. Where do you need reconciliation in your life? You know how important it is? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says if you're at the altar of the church, and you are giving your gift at the altar of the church, and you remember that you are in broken relationship with a brother or sister, you get up from the altar. You get up from the altar. You hold that gift, and you go, and you reconcile with your brother or sister. Imagine if we did that on a Sunday, if I said, wait a minute, before you come to the altar of communion today, go and be reconciled with those whom you're in broken relationship. Before you put that envelope in the offering plate. Go and be reconciled. And then come back and put it in the offering plate. Um, But be reconciled. Be reconciled. That's how important it is. Ministry of reconciliation. Where in your life, where in my life, do I need reconciliation? Where do I need those words to not only get stuck in my head, but to begin to shape my heart? And here's my word to you. Go. Go. Go and do the very best you can to build the bridge and to heal the relationships. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is a challenging word for all of us. Because we all give into our stubbornness. We all want to be right. We all want to win. Lord, remember, remind us that that's not who we're called to be. Jesus didn't prioritize winning or being right. He prioritized love and relationships the one who was perfect who knew no sin became sin that we would be reconciled to you but that we would be instruments of your reconciliation with others lord help us to hear your voice speak help us to respond in obedience and in all that we do through our words through our actions Help us to reflect Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen.